Appalachia. Appalachia is a very distinct word, and everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Moreover, though, whether it's right or wrong, it stirs up images of everything from indescribable mountaintop beauty, deep forest, and cabins in the wood to trailer parks, meth heads, extreme prejudice, and xenophobia. The fact that one word can bring up such a huge response is an owed to its far-reaching influence in society. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed what can only be described as horrendous, demeaning, and even downright unbelievable history as we are now learning every day is not exactly what we've been told and what was once thought to be nothing more than fairy tale is now coming to light as truth. I often hear references to the movie Deliverance or people making funny banjo sounds when describing the Appalachians. I, being born and raised in these mountains, know that nothing in fact could be more wrong or, in some cases, more right. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has been around longer than any place in the United States. In fact, far longer than the United States itself. We'll look into these mountains and learn about the good, the bad, and the ugly history that lies within them to this very day. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Howdy, welcome back, my good friends. Thank you once again for your time today. We've all had the feeling that we've been someplace or seen something before as we look at the very thing we've had that feeling about. Maybe we find ourselves in a situation that seems very much familiar, like we did this already. The term for this feeling is deja vu. I myself do believe that it is more likely than not that if something has happened in the past, it is likely to happen again unless, of course, measures are taken to prevent it. After all, we who look at history believe that alone to be the very reason that we do so. We should take lessons from days gone by and apply them to current situations as a, to prevent catastrophes such as World War II. Maybe if things had been handled a little differently at the earlier date, the deadliest war in history could have been prevented. But who knows for sure? Come on in, y'all. Please lend me your ears one more time as I tell you about how taking early action could have prevented what turned out to be, uh, well, a mess for two fishermen in southwest Virginia.
We go today to Pulaski and Giles counties in the mountains of southwest Virginia. Giles County borders Pulaski County on its southern side. However, it's in Pulaski that I'll begin our tale today. Pulaski was once a bustling little place which had pretty much two main employers, Pulaski Furniture Company and Coleman Furniture Company. Well, that was until the early 70s when White Motor Company, which is now known as Volvo Truck Company, came into the county. The two furniture companies, though, were fierce competitors and were actually known for their high quality of their items. Both of them had their pieces displayed in the White House, after all. Until the mid to late 80s when the market turned and it was more costly for companies to manufacture their pieces than to import them, the two companies remained the two main employers in the county. That's when an 80-year tradition in Pulaski came to an end and with both companies folding by the early 90s. Nonetheless, time marched on and by 2008, Pulaski County had built a new river regional jail that would be jail to be used by those several surrounding counties to house those being charged with everything from jaywalking to murder. One of those surrounding counties that used the jail was Giles County. Now, Giles is mostly a rural county with big farms and Jefferson National Forest encompassing a great deal of it. The Appalachian Trail also passes through Giles County. It was on May 10, 2008 at at close to 5 o'clock when the corrections officer took Randall Lee Smith his dinner tray only to find him unresponsive. Mr. Smith was rushed to the Pulaski Community Hospital and despite all attempts by both the corrections officials and the EMTs who arrived at the scene, Mr. Smith was pronounced dead after about 40 minutes of attempted resuscitation. It was later determined that Mr. Smith, or Lying Randall, as he was known to the locals for his unique ability to spin tall tales that would grow to momentous proportions the longer he had your attention, had died as a result of an automobile accident which he was involved in while fleeing the scene of a crime. The accident had resulted in an injury to his chest for which he was hospitalized for several days where he received treatment before being released into custody. In short, the injury had caused a blood clot to form in his lung, which had resulted in his death. So just what was lying Randall running from, and how did it result in him being in jail to start with? Well, that all started a few days earlier on May 6th, when Sean Farmer of Taswell, Virginia, met Scott Johnston of Bluefield, Virginia, to do a little fishing for the weekend. The men were fishing and camping along Dismal Creek just off the Appalachian Trail when a visitor stopped by their campsite. Scott had first seen him that morning. Actually, he saw the man's dog first, but it was a mangy with a protruding belly and the dog's ribs were sticking out. He thought maybe it was starving. So Scott stopped his truck to check on the poor animal and that's when a gaunt-looking man with a pale complexion wearing a camouflage jacket climbed up off the creek bank. The man started ratchet jawing to Scott that he didn't think there were any fish in the creek because he hadn't caught a single one of them. For those who may not know what ratchet jawing means, that's when somebody's talking non-stop and the listener has to practically use a shoehorn to get a word in edgeways. But once the man finally took a breath, Scott told him to 
hold on a minute. He walked around to his cooler in the back of his truck and showed him his trout. The man's eyes got wide and affixed themselves to the fish. Scott could tell the man was hungry and felt sorry for him, so he reached into his box and gave the man a few of them. The man was instantly grateful and asked Scott if he was going to set up camp nearby. Scott told him that he was and that he was awaiting the arrival of his friend and pointed in the direction of his campsite. The man told Scott that his own camp happened to be in the same direction, only a mile or so beyond where Scott was pointing. He said he might stop by later on his way to his own campsite, so Scott just nodded at him. Scott's campsite sat just a mile and a half from the Appalachian Trail's Wapiti Shelter, the site of an infamous double murder that occurred back in 1981. That was, in fact, the first double murder to occur on the entire Appalachian Trail, which resulted in the deaths of a pair of backpackers from Maine. I remember it well. The victims, being 27-year-old social workers, Laura Susan Ramsey and Robert Mountford, Jr., they were slain at the Wapiti Shelter. After having been reported missing, the bodies which had been buried in their sleeping bags were eventually discovered by a cadaver dog. Robert had been shot in the head with a 22 caliber weapon, and Laura showed signs of having struggled mightily for her life. She had defensive injuries on her hands, she'd been struck in the head with a piece of iron, and she had 13 puncher wounds inflicted by a long nail found at the scene. She also had wounds inflicted by a knife. Investigators suspected Laura had also been sexually assaulted, but it couldn't be proven because of the poor condition of the bodies. It was surmised from interviews with his neighbors that the killer had a lack of experience with women. He was never known to date anyone, which led him to become obsessed with Laura because she was friendly with him when he met her at a store near the trail. The killer was witnessed to have made a pass at Laura, but Robert intervened. The killer later went to the campsite and killed him. The murderer pleaded guilty on two counts of second-degree murder in connection with those murders and was sentenced to life in prison. Twenty-seven years later, he became the only person to commit murder on the Appalachian Trail to be released on parole. That murderer's name was Randall Lee Smith. Now, 27 years later, nearly to the day, Scott had just pointed his campsite out to a double murderer and had no idea who he was. And once again, the murderer was carrying his trusty 22. Scott's friend Sean arrived at the afternoon while Scott was out gathering some firewood. Two men had been fishing and camping in these woods along Dismal Creek since they were little boys. Sean pitched his tent and sat down for a minute, and when he did, a man he'd never seen before walked over to the campsite. The man introduced himself as Ricky Williams and said he had already met Scott and that's when Sean let his guard down and relaxed there. After all, the man knew Scott, right? When Scott returned, he saw his friend with the man he had given fish to earlier. Soon enough, everybody was chatting it up like old friends. There was a cool breeze swirling through the campsite. And we all know that peaceful feeling, being out in the mountains with good company and good food. Well, that's the feeling that Scott and Sean shared that evening. Ricky? Seemed to be in no rush to get to his own campsite, and Scott soon was tossing some trout on the skillet and heating up some beans. 
he invited the man and they come to know as Ricky to stay for dinner. Scott even grilled an extra trout for the old dog. Scott and Sean asked Ricky if he was often kidded about having the same name as the professional football player, Ricky Williams, to which he said, eh, I don't even like Ricky Williams. Then Ricky, or as we know him, Lying Randall, realizing that he had an audience, began weaving his sensational biography. He said that he had attended Virginia Tech and written papers for NASA. Now, whether it be that he went too far too quick with his tail, I, I couldn't say, but uh, neither Sean or Scott believed a word of it. They actually felt bad for the poor guy. They thought that he was likely some alcoholic who had been kicked out of his home. Three hours had passed, and dusk was turning to darkness. Both Sean and Scott wondered why the man wasn't leaving. If he fell in the dark walking to his own campsite, he could be seriously injured. Just as darkness fully fell on the mountain, Ricky got up. Come on, boy, he said to the dog. And just as casually as if somebody was picking up firewood, he walked around behind Scott to his left. Then he put his hand in his pocket and pulled out a twenty-two. Sean saw fire coming from his hand and the bullet slammed into his temple. Then the man turned and fired at Scott, hitting him in the neck. Then he turned back around and fired another shot point blank into Sean's chest. Sean at the time, a six foot four, 325 pound man, staggered a bit but didn't collapse. Still, he felt the wood spinning and there was blood in his eye. Scott had ran as fast as he could for cover the woods and his dash pulled Smith's attention away from Scott. But Smith fired off another round toward the disappearing shadow of Scott and the bullet hit him in the back just below the nape of his neck. The poor dog, well, he was scared to death. He just started howling. Scott crouched behind the trees in the dark, trying to catch his breath, thinking Lion Randall was coming after him. At this point, he didn't know whether his childhood friend was alive or dead. Sean, meanwhile, after being shot in the temple, had staggered to his truck, parked about five yards away. He climbed inside, and for a few seconds, he was wondering if the gunman was chasing after his friend or him. And from the light of the campfire, Sean saw a shadow in his rearview mirror. The killer stood at the driver's side of the truck and raised his arm, pointed the pistol, and pulled the trigger. Stick around, folks. You don't want to miss the end of this one. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. As we left, Sean had seen a shadow outside of his rearview mirror, and soon the killer was standing right outside the driver's side door of the truck. He late raised his arm, pointed the gun, and pulled the trigger at him. And, well, what do you know? The gun didn't fire. Lying Randall ran out of ammo. As he began reloading, Sean started the truck, popped up, and floored the gas pedal. A beam of headlight lit the woods as he screeched into the road, and he's Head was now thumping with pain. Was Scott already dead? He told himself he had to try to get help anyway. Scott heard the engine, saw the light, and bolted into the road. 
Sean flung the truck door open and Scott hopped in. He held a finger in the hole on his neck, which was squirting blood. The bullet had nicked an artery and he was going to die or bleed to death if he didn't put his finger in the wound. As they had to remain conscious amid all the blood, they had to watch the drop-offs on the side of the road as they were curving downhill in the dark in Sean's truck. One wrong move and you're going to the bottom of the mountain the hard way. Anybody that's even drove these roads in the daytime knows how tough this is. They had to get medical attention with the nearest hospital being more than 30 miles away. They had no cell phone reception in the remote woods and they had to worry about the gunman might be barreling down the mountain after them. He did, after all, have Scott's truck with the keys and the ignition, of course, which had been left behind. Even so, this wasn't 1981, and it wasn't the Wapiti shelter, which was more remote. The two victims on that night had no access to an automobile. And, though terribly injured, the two men had each other. Sean with his size and strength, Scott with his pure will. Half of each man made nearly a whole one as they took off down the mountain. Still, Sean's truck was zigzagging and careening out of control. Scott was screaming, stop, trying to get Sean to slow down. He also wanted to steer. He took his finger out of his deck, but blood squirted everywhere, so he had to jam his finger back in. Then it happened. Blam, right into an embankment. Scott reminded Sean that they'd been shot and that they'd die if they didn't get help. You can't run off the road, man. With a bullet in his head, Sean was drifting, his hands sliding around the steering wheel, but they got back onto the road. It took what seemed to be a lifetime to cover the five miles before they saw houses on the right. The first house was under control. I mean, I'm sorry, was under construction. And so they cursed, of course. The second one was dark and then finally lights. They stopped the truck and Scott ran to the door and began banging. He screamed, call 911, me and my friend have been shot. Sean was still in the truck. The inside of his mouth had swollen. He felt like golf balls had been shoved into his mouth and he couldn't even talk. Melissa Miller, who at first thought it might be a home invasion, finally came outside. She thought, oh my God, just as her son Randy came outside too. Randy then dashed back in on his mother's orders to get some towels. They called 911, and an ambulance would be coming from Bland, a town about 20 miles away. Randy was just shocked to think that two people might die right in front of him, right in his own front yard. At first, Melissa thought that those two strangers had been in a fight and maybe shot each other. But when Randy came back with more towels, he recognized Sean. He had seen him in town, and Sean had dated one of his friends. He wound, the wounded man sat on the porch, the Millers applying towels to their wounds. Melissa listened for an ambulance coming in the mountain roads, but didn't hear a thing. She called back and asked where they were. Twenty minutes passed. Blood had soaked nearly all of her towels, and Randy went to try to find more. Scott wanted to talk to his parents. He thought, well, he wouldn't get another chance to talk to them, so Melissa dialed a number. It was now 9.30. Thelma Johnston, Scott's mother, answered. They told her Scott had been shot, and an ambulance was on the way. 
She heard Scott talking in the background. He got on the phone and assured her he was going to be okay, but he was more worried about Sean. He'd been shot in the head. When the ambulance arrived at the Millers, so did the police. The officer asked Scott for a description of the shooter. He said he was gaunt and that he had some graying hair. Randy's grandfather, who was living at the house, knew all about Randall Lee Smith. He told his grandson to go fetch a picture of Randall down at Trent's grocery store because it had been put there because Randall had been missing from his home for more than six weeks from Parisburg. Randy dashed for his car and sped a mile to Trent's to get the picture. The store was closed, of course, by this time, but Randy knew where the owner lived. Soon he was banging on the door yelling, we got an emergency. Soon he had the picture and he tore back up the road to his house where Sean and Scott were getting medical attention by this time. Scott was sh- shown the picture and he, while he was being helped into the ambulance and, and was asked, is this the man who shot you? Scott stared at the photo as blood leaked through the gauze on his face and neck and said, I am 100% sure that's the man. The ambulance took off and raced Scott and Sean through the mountain dark to Hollybrook Community Center in Bland where there was a big enough field for two helicopters to land. When the ambulance arrived, the helicopters were on site and ready in the dark field, but when medical personnel got a look at Sean, they immediately knew they had a problem. He was just too big to fit inside their helicopter. So they quickly decided to take him about 20 miles by ambulance to the small hospital in Withville, where a larger helicopter could pick him up. Scott was loaded into one of the helicopters and was convinced that he was going to die. Why else would they be rushing him by helicopter? He had thought Sean's injury, a bullet to the head and another in the chest, were more serious than his. Now he seriously wondered about that. As the helicopter rose and slanted away from the mountains in the direction of Roanoke, Scott heard voices inside the helicopter, then others on the radio. Blood started to come out of his mouth, and he heard a lady say over the radio, I'm not sure he's going to make it. And then he thought that he may already be dead and not even know it yet. But when they landed in Roanoke, a blast of cold air hit him when they opened the doors, and he knew he was alive. Meanwhile, the Millers called Lena Farmer, Sean's mother, who owns a small hair salon in Bluefield. In the middle of the night, she was on her way to Withful, about 30 miles away. When she reached Withful, she was told Sean had already been airlifted to Roanoke, an hour's drive away. She immediately lit out for Roanoke Memorial Trauma Center. When she got there, both Sean and Scott were in surgery. Back on the mountain, police put out an all-points bulletin for Randall Lee Smith and closed the trail in the area above Parisburg. But unlike in 1981, when the victim's body weren't discovered for weeks, Mr. Smith didn't have much of a lead on him. He was still in the woods above Dismal Creek, and he was driving Scott Johnston's truck. A camper would later report that he had heard a man screaming and cussing higher up on the mountain that evening. Investigators would later discover a spot in the area where Smith had stashed some of his belongings. Being so dark that night, he got lost and just couldn't find him. Later that night, a state trooper was driving along Sugar Run Road in Staffordsville, about eight miles from Parisburg and spotted a gray truck stolen from Scott going in the opposite direction. When Mr. Smith saw the truck, he sped off, but he 
soon ran off the road and flipped over. The investigators arrived at the scene. Randall Lee Smith was still inside, upside down in the truck. A search revealed a 22 caliber handgun laying just over his shoulder and the whites of Randall's eyes were rolled back. They were the coldest that anybody had ever looked in in their old lives. Ironically, Smith was rushed to Roanoke Memorial Trauma Center, which was the same hospital as Sean and Scott. Smith was released from the hospital after two days. He had been on round-the-clock police guard, and he was taken to the medical wing of the New River Valley Regional Jail on May 9th. Lying Randall was claiming that the shootings were self-defense. And that's where they found him the next day at dinner time, where Mountain Karma had stepped in. Instead of having two funerals for innocent victims, about a dozen family members attended, attended Randall Lee Smith's funeral at the A. Vest and Sons Funeral Home in Parisburg. Taped music played at the private service, which was announced that only after he had been buried. The funeral lasted 30 minutes. He was buried next to his mother at the Fairview Cemetery in Narrows. His dog, Bo, scratched in the dirt at the graveside ceremony. He was soon adopted and lived out his days by a caring family. Doctors and family members constantly remind Scott and Sean how lucky they were. If they, any of the four bullets had gone a millimeter in this or that direction, just a fraction of a millimeter, in fact, the results would have been catastrophic. Instead, they were both out of the hospital within a week. Though were multiple return visits to doctors, as well as long physical therapy sessions, they replayed the night at Dismal Creek over and over. If Lying Randall had have pulled a knife out on his two mountain boys, they'd have took him out no problem. But it was a twenty-two, and there's nothing you can do with a twenty-two pointed at you from behind you, and you didn't even know it was there to start with. Scott still has a bullet in the back of his neck. Huge scars come together at the front of his neck, forming a V. Sean's gunshot wound in the chest healed. Doctors as far as I could find, left the bullet fragments that are lodged in his sinus area <clears throat> rather than do any more cutting on him. Sean used to drive a truck for a coal business but got laid off after the shooting. And Scott moved to Tampa, Florida where he lived for 14 years and finally moved back to Black Bluefield. These days he lays tile to make ends meet and even does that on his own terms so he can still fish. That's right, you're not going to stop a hillbilly from fishing. His favorite eagle call fire rod had been in the truck that flipped over when Smith tried to escape, and it was found in the wreck, snapped in two. Sean believes that if he'd ran into the woods, that lying Randall would have reloaded and hunted them both down. Sometimes people are in the position to make decisions that could lead to a situation that could ruin or even end the lives of others as a direct result of that decision. I don't honestly think that those who paroled Randall Lee Smith ever thought that he would do anything like this, but according to those who knew him, they never thought that he would do anything like this to start with back in 1981. Sometimes life should just mean life. I hope you got something out of our story today. If you have... Please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to subscribe or follow, please. Please go over to our Patreon page and have a look at it. You can search Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend. 
If you'd like to join, there are several levels to do so, starting at Mountain Boomer all the way up to Appalachian Hillbilly. There's exclusive content there, as well as the early ad-free release of episodes. You can support our podcast also by clicking the link in the show notes. Or you can just plain go over to our Facebook group, Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend Podcast, and we'll just haggle about anything you want to talk about. I'll be back soon with another Appalachian Murder, Mystery, or Legend. I'll see you then.